Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Hey there, EM Guidewire enthusiasts. We hope that you've enjoyed our septic deep dive in recognition of Sepsis Awareness Month this September. We are so honored that you have taken the time to review the ins and outs of sepsis definitions, as well as fluids and antibiotic choices and how to use them in a guided resuscitation with us. We're so excited about the care of the septic patient that we figured we would throw out a special bonus episode, one that focuses on sepsis in the littlest of our patients. Did you know that 3 million kids succumb to sepsis each year worldwide? Sometimes our P2 shift can feel like you're taking care of a majority of those kiddos. Given these numbers, let's dive into the world of pediatric sepsis with the EM Guidewire team. Here we go. Welcome back to EM Guidewire's month-long look at the critically important topic of sepsis. We're coming to you, as we always do, from the EM department at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm Nikki Richardson, PGY3. I'm Victoria Servin, PGY2. And I'm Jenny Potter, PGY3. Previously, we touched on sepsis definitions, fluid resuscitation, and antibiotics. What are we going to cover today? Well, today we're going to change gears a little and talk about little people, the very exciting topic of pediatric sepsis. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the pulse oximeter, not just for reading the oxygen level, but a great way to convertly know the pulse for all of those kids who seem to just hate you and keep tripping the sepsis alarms for heart rates of 200, the pulse ox. And now back to pediatric sepsis. Ugh, pediatric sepsis. Seriously, kids are scary. Okay, that was an exaggeration, but kids are challenging. Yes, and part of what makes this topic so exciting are its inherent challenges. Compared to the adult emergency department population, a significantly higher number of pediatric emergency department visits are for infection. While severe sepsis is less common in the pediatric population in general, the number of children presenting with fever or other infectious signs or symptoms as their chief complaint is super high, making the development of a sophisticated yet simple screening tool that can easily identify the sick from the not sick is our first line of defense as ED providers. Exactly right. It can be daunting to try to sort through all of the kids with fever and find the ones who are truly sick. Did you know that in RED, approximately 30 to 40 percent of the patients we see each day present with concerns for infection? Screening these children is even further complicated by the fact that there is no easy number to remember when it comes to vital sign abnormalities in children, because what's considered normal for heart rate, respiratory rate, and blood pressure changes with age. Like I said, kids are challenging. While the definition of SIRS in children includes temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, and leukocyte count, similar to an adult, the cutoffs vary with age. The temperature measurement is straightforward. Core temps greater than 38.5 Celsius or less than 36 Celsius are the cutoffs, same as in adults. The heart rate and respiratory rate, on the other hand, abnormalities are defined as a mean heart rate or respiratory rate greater than two standard deviations above the normal for age. Two standard deviations? I didn't know I was supposed to do math. This is where having your reference resource handy is helpful. Or pay attention to the computer when it flags the vital signs as being abnormal. That's right. Additionally, the white blood cell count abnormality is defined more generally as leukocyte count that is elevated or depressed for age. So knowing the appropriate range for this is also important. As if the significant percentage of the population with infection and the lack of specific vital sign abnormalities to define SIRS wasn't enough, This topic is further complicated by the fact that the term sepsis does not have a strict definition in the pediatric population. 
This is so true and brings up a very important point. Like we discussed on episode one of this month's sepsis exploration, sepsis is not an infection. Sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by the dysregulated response to an infection. Okay, so sepsis is the body's response to the infection, not the infection itself. That makes sense. Exactly. For a kid to be septic, you start with an infection, either presumed or proven, or in the case of some kids, a syndrome associated with an infection such as fever, and then add the response to that infection, which is your SERS criteria. If children with infection have a diagnostic response, aka SERS criteria, then they meet the general definition of sepsis. So the question becomes, out of all of the children presenting to the ED with presumed or proven infection, how do we identify those that are at risk for sepsis? Because of the sheer volume of children presenting with infectious symptoms, we need to be able to screen this population quickly and effectively. Yes, that is the question. And the answer is, at least in part, the use of screening tools. All across the country, EDs are looking to decipher what is the best screening tool. Here at CMC and Levine's Children's Hospital, we've developed our own pediatric sepsis triage screening tool, which is completed by the triage nurse. This tool first evaluates a child's high-risk medical history and age-based vital signs, assessments the triage nurse does for every child presenting to the ED. If the child screens positive on these questions, a more thorough nursing evaluation is performed, which includes assessment of capillary refill, mental status, and general appearance. If there are any abnormalities identified on this secondary assessment, the nurse then alerts a provider to perform a more complete assessment. Wow. That sounds pretty labor-intensive. With as many kids that present for fever every day, I can only imagine this provider assessment taking up a significant amount of time. Actually, that's the beauty of this screening tool. The nursing assessment is mostly items which are performed on all patients anyway. The additional assessment is only performed on children that initially screen positive and only adds an additional 30 seconds to one minute to the assessment. Even though 30 to 40% of daily visits are for fever or other infectious signs or symptoms, only 1 to 2% of patients screen positive using this assessment tool. So now that we have identified the children who meet sepsis criteria, the next step becomes identifying those who are at risk for severe sepsis. Severe sepsis is defined as sepsis plus organ dysfunction. This can be cardiovascular dysfunction or septic shock, respiratory dysfunction, neurologic dysfunction, hematologic dysfunction, renal dysfunction, or hepatic dysfunction. Screening for organ dysfunction is accomplished with basic laboratory screenings, including lactate, CBC, CMP, and blood cultures. Urine studies and culture and chest x-ray can also be added to this screening assessment in the appropriate clinical scenario. Lactate? Are you sure? I thought we didn't use lactate greater than four as part of the definition in pediatrics. True, while there is no identified cutoff for elevated lactate in the pediatric literature, elevated lactate in the setting of infection has been shown to be associated with increased mortality, and lactate greater than two times the upper limit of normal is considered an indicator of septic shock. The lactate level is also good to trend to help guide your resuscitation. Okay, so what about these other fancy laboratory values like CRP and procalcitonin? Good question. There is ongoing research into the utility of procalcitonin. The theory is that during systemic infection, procalcitonin is not only secreted by the thyroid, but many other tissues as well, resulting in an increase in serum levels that can assist in differentiating sepsis from non-infectious SIRS. It is also thought that interferon gamma produced during a viral infection attenuates the levels of procalcitonin, thus aiding in the use of procalcitonin levels in distinguishing viral from bacterial infections. Thus far, there have been no multi-center studies evaluating procalcitonin as a prognostic or risk-stratifying tool. So for now, I would leave this test out of your septic workup. I will get a CRP when working up sepsis in an ill-appearing child that I will be antibiosing. This is a relatively cheap test, and its levels are not affected by immunocompromised state or renal failure. 
a systemic review of the diagnostic accuracy of CRP for bacterial infection in non-hospitalized children with fever found its sensitivity and specificity to be 77 and 79% respectively. However, serial measurements in which CRP levels remain elevated or increase after 48 hours of antibiotic therapy suggest treatment failure. While it doesn't necessarily assist with my diagnosis or treatment, the CRP trend can be beneficial for the inpatient team, especially when evaluating the effectiveness of the chosen antibiotic. So what about antibiotics? Do we need to give every child that meets sepsis criteria antibiotics within a specific time period like we do for adults? Well, we know that a majority of these illnesses in otherwise healthy children are caused by viral infections. For that reason, in the case of an otherwise healthy, well-appearing child without severe sepsis, unless there's another source identified on your workup like a pneumonia or urinary tract infection, we recommend admitting these children for observation off of antibiotics after discussion with your inpatient pediatric team. For ill-appearing children or children with significant risk factors or those with severe sepsis, we recommend early antibiotic therapy. Okay, great. But what about the children that don't fit into this well-appearing, non-severe sepsis group? What about the sick kids? What are we doing for them? Similar to adults, we start a resuscitation with IV fluids. Generally, we start with a 20 mil per kick bolus and reassess. For kids with complex congenital heart disease, we generally stop here, and if they're still hypotensive, go to vasopressors. For everyone else, we go on to 40 mil per kg total bolus. For kids with sickle cell disease or other chronic diseases, we stop here. For previously healthy kids, we can give up to 60 mils per kg IV fluid before starting vasopressors. And what kind of fluid are you using? Great question, Jenny. Like we discussed in episode two, fluid choice is important. Recently, MRath et al. published a retrospective multicenter study evaluating the use of balanced fluids aka LR or plasmolite, versus normal saline in pediatrics with severe sepsis. This showed improved survival, decreased prevalence of AKI, and shorter duration of vasopressors when balanced fluids were used. And if the child continues to be hypotensive after the IV fluid bolus, then what? Then, similar to adults, we'll move on to vasopressors. But unlike in adults, we recommend epinephrine as your first-line vasopressor. That's right. Recently, Ventura et al. published a double-blind, prospective randomized control trial comparing the use of epinephrine versus dopamine as the first-line vasoactive drug in pediatric septic shock, which showed early administration of peripheral or intraosseous epinephrine was associated with increased survival while the use of dopamine was associated with a higher mortality with an odds ratio of 6.5, and even higher for hospital-acquired infections with an odds ratio of 67.7. Exactly. We recommend starting with 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute of epinephrine for fluid refractory septic shock in pediatric patients, which can be initiated through either peripheral IV or IO. If shock continues despite the use of epinephrine, the use of additional pressors should be guided by consultation with a pediatric intensivist. As a very wise physician once said, the pediatric ER is no place to be mixing pressors. Well, that's all we have for today. We hope you've enjoyed this brief overview of pediatric sepsis. Let's take a minute to recap. Children can be challenging to care for, but we're well-trained and up to the challenge. The management of pediatric sepsis comes down to three basic steps. First, screening the large population of children that present with infectious signs or symptoms to identify those with a clinical picture concerning for sepsis. Second, identifying those with sepsis, those with presumed or proven infection and SERS criteria, and those with severe sepsis based on laboratory evaluation. And third, treatment involves early antibiotics if indicated, balanced fluid resuscitation, and epinephrine as a vasopressor of choice for fluid-resistant septic shock. That's all, folks. Thanks again for joining us in the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studio here at Carolina's Medical Center. Join us again next month for more awesome emergency medicine education. This is EM Guidewire.
thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go, be awesome today. Seems you out. All right, cool. I'll, well, I have no idea what that was. <laughs> Someone's spying on us. Oh, it's super weird. We did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Nice. Woohoo!